You can support this podcast on patreon.com forward slash firstpawmedia. Radio Free Palmer 89.5 KVRF presents Mushing Radio, hosted by Robert Forto. Mushing Radio is about dog-powered sports, living in the Great White North, and mushing. Visit our website at mushingradio.com. Here is your host, Robert Forto. Hello and welcome everybody. This is Robert and I am joined by my co-host Tony and we are Mushing Radio. Tony, how's it going tonight? going pretty well. My 49ers just won, so I'm on cloud nine. Yes, they were dominant uh, here on Monday night. And if you're listening on Wednesday or Thursday, this is old news. But hey, uh, the 49ers are rocking and rolling and not too good for the Seahawks here in the NFC West. So, yes, we are a mushing show. and We're going to talk about mushing. So uh, in the last couple of weeks, we've had uh, a whole bunch of stuff happen uh, on the not so good front. In the mushing world, uh, our last episode was the Lance Mackey tribute. Uh, since then, he had his um, funeral service, a celebration of life. Uh, what do you know about that? I know neither one of us were able to attend, but you watched some of it on Zoom. Is that right? I did. I, I was one of the lucky hundred that ended up getting on the link before Zoom closed it out to the rest of uh, those that wanted to watch live. Um, and it was, it was what I think you would expect from um, a, a musher type send off. Um, a lot of stories uh, revolved around Lance's racing career and mushing career. Um, you know, his brothers spoke, his sisters spoke, his niece Brenda spoke. Um, several of his longtime mushing buddies spoke both from the quest and Iditarod. You had Iditarod volunteers and fans that spoke. Um, and it was a good two hours of eulogies, um, and memories. And then, uh, they closed the service down and then had their reception and then the after stuff, which my understanding was, again, a lot of celebration, um, Barbara Reddington, she took pictures and shared them on social media um, where she actually got to ride in and I think drive Lance's race car. Um, among other things, they were doing uh, sled dog rides, car rides, um, and a lot of memory sharing. So I think it was, I'm sure it was a somber time and, and very difficult for the Mackey family, but to see just a small part of how much uh, Lance meant to everyone from the neighbors and fans to the volunteers and officials. And of course, uh, Iditarod um, was a big part of it. There were a lot of Iditarod champions that he kicked their booty Um Back in the day, uh, they came. Doug Swingley flew up for the service. Uh, Jeff King was in attendance. Um, it was just a really, really cool um, coming together. And I, I think it's such a great tribute and speaks volumes of how much Lance means to the mushing community. 
Yeah, and I saw all those pictures, and uh, boy, there was uh, a lot of uh, of the mushing community there, as as we would expect. Mm-hmm. So let's move on to another Iditarod champion, champion who happens to also be Mackie. Uh, there's a little bit of a, a news about that. What do you know? Um, I don't know much. Uh, I think fans that follow Brenda's kennel, um, she posted a few days ago um, a little bit of frustration about um, some stuff going on with her dad. I haven't heard anything official. Um, you probably know a little bit more because you're closer to uh, Brenda and, and that sort of thing. But I do know that um, Rick uh, has has some medical issues that they're downsizing his kennel. Um, Brenda posted a few um, sleds and I think a few of the puppies uh, for sale and noted that they were for medical expenses as well as to just make it easier on her parents to to handle the kennel. Um, So I don't know if you've heard more, (laughs) um, but that's what I know. (laughs) Well, I don't want to release anything that isn't public for sure, but definitely his... Our thoughts are, are with him. Uh, Rick Mackey, uh, 1983 I Did Rod champion. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yep, with lucky bib number 13, like we said in the Lance tribute a couple weeks ago. Right. So, so def- yeah. definitely thinking about uh, the, the Mackey family all around for sure. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about um, us heading into the 2022-2023 season. We've alluded to this for a long time, pretty much since I did a rod ended way back in March that uh, that mushing is now really a a year-long sport and if, if you're involved in the mushing community, you know that the first week of October is a big deal. It is race signups for a lot of the mid-distance races and and uh, the first is typically the day that that happens. A lot of action happens right before midnight. What do you know about the races that have already opened up entries? Um, Well, the first race of the 2022-23 season is the Alpine Creek Excursion. Um, They opened up registration this weekend, and they closed registration the same day because they filled up their slots, and they now have um, a full roster of 40, it should be 40 teams, but I'm looking at their roster right now and there's 41. So it looks like um, one of the kennels that uh, signed up, they have two teams running. So it'll be 41 teams. Um, And then they have a waiting list that right now has six names on it. And I saw in comments on a different post of theirs on social media that other mushers were also hoping to get on that waiting list that I don't see their names on there now. So um, it's really exciting. Alpine Creek excursion. Um, has several um, classes. Uh, They've got, you know, your standard race. They've got the double musher uh, race, you know, two mushers with one team, that sort of thing. Um, It's a little more laid back. It's also one of the cheaper races to enter. I think the entry fee this year was a hundred bucks. So it's, it's really, it's exciting. It kicks off uh, the mushing season on December 10th. Um, it's not one of those races that typically have the GPS trackers. So we are at the mercy of the race, being able to have somebody on social media, typically Facebook to give us updates. Um, but it, it still signifies the start of mushing race 
season. So really exciting to see them do so well. Um, Copper Basin also opened uh, this weekend, and they have a, a healthy uh, starting roster of 13 names now um, with a lot of familiar names and some new names if you're not as familiar with some of the up-and-coming teams or the ones that are trying to qualify for the different big races. But you've still got Brent Sass in the mix, Nicholas Petit, of course, Matt Hall, Jesse Holmes. Uh, is hoping to run Copper Basin, uh, along with several other names that if you're fans of the Iditarod or the Yukon Quest, you should be able to recognize most of the names on the, the roster so far. Uh, Willow 300 also opened this weekend, but they're keeping mum for now on their roster and how it's looking. And then the Tesco opened registration this morning, and they already have four names. Um, it's a small start, I think, for the Cusco, but uh, I think they're going to have similar, um, a similar sort of deal as like the Iditarod and Quest with a smaller roster, at least to start out with, because it's so expensive to fly out to the Cusco for those that don't live right there. And of course, with everything going on in Western Alaska with uh, the aftermath of Typhoon Murbach. Um, I think there's just a lot of uncertainty for kennels in being able to train, to afford to run in some of these more expensive races. And so we don't see as many names as normal, but there are four, three of whom are um, veterans of the race. You've got uh, Matt Failer, Richie Deal, Nick Petit all signed up, and then they've got one rookie in Josh McNeil, who um, has run the Iditarod a couple of times. So uh, it's a it's a good looking roster, but it's small. But it is the first day, so it'll be interesting to see how that grows. Yes. Yeah, so all of those uh, big time <laughs> races there are the three hundred mile qualifiers up here in Alaska, and that that's pretty exciting that uh, all of them opened on the same day. I know we've talked about uh, both sides of the Yukon quest and, and their entries, they opened up, uh, mm -hmm. in late August. And we talked about that in our pre two previous shows back. So you can hear about that if you check out our feed. And I should note very quickly that we do have a new feed and make sure you subscribe to it. Uh, you can find us anywhere you're uh, listening to your podcast right now. So on any app, just make sure you hit that subscribe button because many, many of you are subscribed to Dogworks Radio, the feed that has been around for 14 years now. And we took some advice that we learned at Podcast Movement, and it's best to separate our brands a little bit. So we have a brand new feed for Mushing Radio. So please subscribe and tell your mushing friends to do so as well. And if you like what you hear, please leave a comment that really helps us out on rankings and uh, show availability and all that sort of stuff. So please do that if you're so inclined. So before we jump over to our story for this afternoon or this evening, Tony, what about Iditarod? Where do we stand with it right now in terms of entries? Good question. Um, last I checked, they were up to 25 names, I believe, but I can look that up really quick as well. It is still a small roster. We haven't seen something this small in a good long while. Um, and, you know, while we were 
reminiscing and, and remembering Lance, I spent a good deal of time watching DVDs and uh, video of uh, past races when he was up and coming and then, of course, dominating the race. And seeing rosters of 90 or almost 90 teams leaving the start in Anchorage and Willow, uh, it, it really, it's a really stark contrast to this year's race. Um, but as far as I know, we haven't had any more. We're still at 25, got a healthy group of rookies. Um, and then, of course, a lot of veterans, still only Brent Sass uh, for our returning champions. Uh, everybody else that are veterans, they're still trying to catch that first one. So it's it's interesting. Um, you know, there's it's a definite changing of the guard. And I think that, um, you know, some of those uh, veteran champions that aren't necessarily named on the roster, they still have dogs in the race. Most of them have decided to either try their luck at being Iditarod coaches of these teams, or they're just sitting it out for a year or two. Um, I know a few of the, the teams that were on the fence this year were are dealing with injuries sustained from the crazy windstorm of last year. Um, so, it, it, you know, there's a lot of factors for why there's such a small roster, uh, but it's, it's, I, I'm not freaking out like a lot of fans are. I've been getting a lot of feedback from listeners who are like, shouldn't you be panicking more? And I'm really not, uh, you know, with everything going on this year, I kind of understand why we have such a small roster. I'm bummed, but it, it's understandable. Yeah, 25 is, uh, is not very big at all. And of course, they have until November 30th to register without paying a very hefty uh, late fee. And we often have sort of a push there towards the end of, of signups around Thanksgiving or so. We'll see a few. Mm -hmm. So do you think we will ever see those huge numbers again in the 80s or 90s? I don't think we will. I don't think so either. Um, you know, there's, again, a lot of factors I know that the race itself, uh, the logistics teams were were really being taxed at that number, um, and that's when we had the rule come out that they would cap at 100 teams. We never got to 100 teams, um, but it did make for a lot of difficult decisions on the part of race officials. Um, I think we saw a lot more of the um, withdrawing of back-of-the-pack mushers uh, when we had those giant rosters. And a lot of that was due to needing to move um, volunteers from one checkpoint to another one up the trail um, to keep the race moving. Um, another concern was a lot of the villages were like, this is a lot of dogs and a lot of cleanup afterwards. Um, and so it was taxing on a lot of the, the behind-the-scenes stuff. Um, so I, I don't know that I did Rod really want 80 to 90 mushers <laughs> or, or teams going through. Um, I think it's, I think it's at its best when it's between 60 and 70 teams, uh, as far as excitement goes. Um, but I, I think it's more competitive with the smaller numbers. So I don't, I don't know it, it I would like to see a healthy roster again, but, um, I don't think 25 is too terrible either for the the 
stuff that we're in right now. Yeah. And just a little bit of perspective. If you have a hundred teams with the maximum number of dogs per team at 14, that's 1400 dogs at the ceremonial start in Anchorage or the restart. Uh, that is a lot of <laughs> dirty paws for sure. So before we jump into our, our story tonight, I forgot to mention the dry land race that we have up here. It's yeah. the only, only one here in Alaska. It's called the Alaska Dog Works Dry Land Derby. It's something that uh, my wife, Michelle, and I sponsor. We own Alaska Dog Works. And it was held on the last weekend of September this year. We had 45 entries, which is pretty respectable for Alaska. I know some of the dry land races down south and over in Europe have a hundred or more entries, but when you have 45 entries for a dry land race, that's a big deal. We had uh, people coming from all over the state. We had one dog cana crossers and bike drawers and scooters and rigs and the whole nine yards. And it was a lot of fun. And And I've said this over and over and over again, that I really think this is, this is the, uh, the future of the sport. I don't think long distance mushing will go away anytime soon. But I think that we're going to be covering a lot more dry land events in the future, especially in the lower 48 and in Europe. So let's jump over to our story of the evening. And I'm sure if you are a big time mushing fan, you already know what we're going to talk about. But it has to do with a, a very recognizable musher. And this typhoon that you mentioned uh, that happened uh, a couple of weeks ago here in Alaska on the western front over near Nome, Kotzebue, Bethel area. What do you know, Tony? Um, yeah, it was uh, the remnants of Typhoon Murbach came up and slammed into western Alaska. A lot of your um, coastal villages got hit hard. Many mushing fans recognize several of the villages hit the hardest because they are also Iditarod checkpoints. Shaktulik lost its um, natural uh, barrier between it and the sea. They're not sure how their winter is going to go. Um, if another big storm hits, there's nothing between them and the big waves that will, uh, of course, come towards land. Um, and then one of the major villages that was hit and was underwater and looking more like um, Venice <laughs> than it was looking like Western Alaska is the village of Golovin, um, which is no longer an Iditarod checkpoint. Um, but was for, for many, many years now, they kind of skip over it and just uh, go on past, um, but they still run right by it and through it. Um, and so a team of Iditarod mushers volunteered to go help with the cleanup. Um, judging by the pictures, Aaron Burmeister was there, um, Jeff Dieter was there, uh, Richie Beatty was there, uh, Brent Sass, and then Jesse Holmes. And while they were over there, they were working on pulling out wet insulation from one of the homes like they had done um, earlier, either in that week or that day, I'm not quite sure. Um, and everything went smoothly with the first house. And in the second house, as Jesse was taking a crowbar to move the wood so that they could get to the insulation, is my understanding, um, the floor 
gave way out from or up above him and essentially buried him. And he uh, sustained some pretty major injuries. And honestly, with the way that the story uh, was told by Jeff Dieter and some of the others that were there, um, Jesse's lucky to be walking around and talking at all. Um, he broke his wrist on one arm, broke his his other arm, broke ribs, crushed his esophagus, I'm told. Um, and the only thing that kept his head from being crushed was the fact that he got his hands up uh, in enough time. Uh, it was Richie and Brent who uh, basically spent over three minutes, uh, it was said, unburying him, digging him out and cutting him out to get him uh, help. So uh, he's he was medevaced to First Nome and then Anchorage. He underwent surgery. Uh, he's out of surgery now. He's obviously still thinking of the racing season because he signed up for a bunch of races uh, over the weekend. I don't know if that was planned or if that was, you know, because he's on some really good painkillers right now. But um, he's hoping to run in those races, and he mentioned today in a statement that he is hoping to come in first in Nome for the Iditarod. So um, it's a happy ending uh, that could have gone a completely different way. So it's, I'm sure all of his uh, friends and family and, of course, fans uh, can breathe a huge sigh of relief that he does have such a hopeful outlook for the season. Yeah, when I read that story, I thought, my goodness, this this could have ended badly very quickly. And thankfully, everything is working out. Uh, as you mentioned, he he was in surgery today for for one of his injuries, and he wanted to thank all of his fans and and supporters for all of their well wishes. And uh, he is very thankful for all the notes. And of course, they set up a GoFundMe to help him out with his. Um, his injuries and you can find those links over on his Facebook page. Do you know why that group of guys were, were heading over that way? Is that, was there some type of special deal or something that, that brought all these guys together or is it just a bunch of uh, uh, friends getting together to do some volunteer work? Do you know? I, you know, I, I don't know the official um, reason, but it does seem like it was just a bunch of friends that got together and said, you know what, let's go help out one of these villages. Um, Golovin, like I said, was hit very, very hard. And, you know, they're all Iditarod mushers. They're all familiar with this area, um, you know, especially someone like Aaron Burmeister, who grew up on uh, the west coast of Alaska. And so... I think it was just a, you know, let's give back to a community that's given us so much over the years. Um, and, you know, it's great that you mentioned the GoFundMe. I believe that was started by the the community of Golovin to help uh, Jesse, um, you know, and here they are. They're trying to rebuild their village. They have GoFundMe's for the village of Golovin, and yet they're wanting to give back to one of the volunteers helping out. So um, that's just, you know, it's the Alaska way. Um, it's it's certainly not surprising, but it is still a touching part of the story where um, here people are coming together to help in this village's time of need. Now the village is giving back to those that are giving to them. So um, right now I'm looking at the GoFundMe and they've raised just over $40,000 um, since the, the GoFundMe was started earlier this 
weekend. And um, yeah, it's just, it's incredible. Um, you know, I was really surprised. I hadn't heard anything. Uh, I wondered if uh, we wouldn't see a group of um, Iditarod volunteers, be it mushers or, or other folk from Iditarod going out to some of these villages and to find out this way. And the only way we found out is because Jesse got hurt. Um, I think they were just trying to fly under the radar and do a good deed without uh, the press and the hoopla and <laughs> that kind of backfired. <laughs> so um, I think kudos to them. And, and I hope that, um, you know, the work continues uh, uh, maybe a little more carefully uh, in the future, though I'm sure they were being as careful as possible with uh, the water log, wood, and, and everything. I'm sure it was a matter of time before something came crashing down. Yeah, it's been a crazy couple of weeks for weather, not only here in Alaska, <laughs> yeah. but all over the country. So definitely climate change is upon us. And uh, you don't you just really have to look out your, your front door to see it happening. So so with that, Tony, before we close for the evening, anything else that we forgot? No, I just wanted to say that your dryland race, from what I understand, was more a wetland race than a dryland race. I saw some pictures. Maybe next year I'll get up there and brave the elements to take pictures. But uh, it sounds like it was fun, just a little muddy. It is always a muddy race, and uh, <laughs> it, it's it's always fun. You got to come up and uh, take some pictures, and uh, uh, a great group of people, you know, mushers from from all around us, and of course. Just uh, just the guys and gals that have one or two dogs and they come out and uh, run and, and sometimes do very well. So we'll definitely keep you updated on that as we go. <laughs> so with that, uh, we're going to close the show. We will be back in two weeks. That will be well into October, well into training season for us. Uh, mushers and uh, fans will be itching for more news. So we hope to have some exciting things to come. Tony, it's a pleasure. We'll see you soon, okay? Sounds good. And on behalf of my co-host, this is Robert for Mushing Radio. See you guys next time. Goodbye. From Dog Works Radio, this is Mushing Radio. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and we invite you to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll find a link on the episode notes. You can tap or swipe on the episode cover art, and you'll see some offers from our sponsors. You can support our show by supporting them. If you like what you have heard, we would love it if you could give us a five-star rating and tell your friends how to subscribe too. Your hosts are Alex Stein and Robert Forto. Our producer is Robert Forto, created for Dog Works Radio. 